This is a CBC podcast. It's going in the dangerous direction. I see a new generation of conflicts across the horizon, across the the globe. There's no mistaking it. The world is on a troubling course. Today, we're going to try to better understand why we're seeing so many conflicts and if there's a path out. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we'll also meet people for whom all of this is very personal. The Taiwanese official who wants to stop his home from becoming the next Ukraine and the wife of a political prisoner in Russia. She's fighting for both a freer Russia and for her own family. Every time I have to leave yet again and I tell them, sorry, they say, no, mom, it's okay, we understand. We, we know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just go and get daddy back. Plus, we'll dig into Justin Trudeau's shift in message on the Middle East and the repercussions. But first, we've got a rare interview with a top member of the RCMP. He's going to walk us through the gangs and the greed fueling fentanyl deaths in Canada. The House is now in session. Stopping the flow of fentanyl was one of the few things U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed on this week. The two met in San Francisco and Xi vowed the Chinese government will crack down on the companies producing fentanyl and the ingredients used to make it. But those chemicals come into Canada too. We heard the anger over the flow of drugs when we visited Thunder Bay, Ontario, part of our special focus on Canada's toxic drug crisis. Here's recovering substance user Kyle Arnold, followed by Thunder Bay Police Chief Darcy Fleury. It's so much profit. We have gangs showing up from all over Canada to try to get rich. And we have a police force that can't keep up. They can't keep up. It's not their fault. They literally cannot keep up. The drug trade is lucrative in this area. They can sell their product for a bit higher than what they can down south. So they arrive here. They've been here for some time. Uh, For example, last year we arrested 150 people from southern Ontario related to the drug and and gang situation. Well, Mathieu Bertrand knows a lot about who is selling toxic drugs in Canada and where they're coming from. He's the chief superintendent of serious and organized crime and border integrity at the RCMP. Welcome to the House. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Glad to have your perspective today. To start, what do we know about who is profiting off the toxic drugs on Canadian streets? Well, I I think you've heard in some of your earlier segments, really what we're seeing is that organized crime groups are profiting from the demand or the increasing demand in the drug supply or the illicit drug supply currently. And our concern is that that illicit drug supply is very toxic. We know that an incredible number of people are dying. What do we know about the size of the the drug trade? Are are you able to to quantify how big a problem this is? I can, and it is is a very significant problem. Our um, Criminal Intelligence Service Canada in 2023 assumes that there's over 3,500 organized crime groups, uh, not just based in Canada, but operating in Canada. From that large number, they assess 638 groups operating in Canada, uh, and they confirm that 84% of those groups are involved and profiting from the illicit drug trade. And further to that, 21% of those groups are involved with substances that are responsible 
for the overdose crisis that we're faced with right now. This is obviously when you have such large numbers of gangs or organized crime groups involved. It's a big business. Are we able to say how much money is at play here? Well, I can't put a figure on it, but what you said is accurate. And I think, again, you've, you've heard earlier that this is a very, very lucrative market and, and really is, is driving the increased in production in Canada, but also organized crime groups from around the world having an interest in getting their products to Canada simply just to profit and make money off a substance abuse and death of our citizens. We know that in the United States, Mexican cartels are responsible for a lot of the fentanyl on the streets. In Canada, do we know if the drugs are being imported or if they're actually being made here? That is a great question, and we do know that. Uh, Sadly, Canada is a producing country of fentanyl and synthetic opioids. Not only are we a producing country, but we're also an export country, which means that the supply is is larger than the demand or that organized crime groups manufacturing these products in Canada know that there is a more lucrative market in another country. There is also uh, an issue with importation. We do know that fentanyl and other synthetic drugs are being imported from Asian countries and South American countries, but really our efforts, our collaborative efforts in law enforcement in Canada is to address the domestic production because it is significant. Okay. I, I Certainly, I'm sure it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows, the idea that Canada is exporting these drugs. And I do want to dig down into this, but but let's just stay with the idea that you put forward there about so much of this, these drugs being produced in Canada. The raw ingredients to make them, because I know that's been a big part of the conversation in the United States. Where are those coming from and how are they getting into Canada? Uh, so the, the precursors are the chemical products that are being used to produce these synthetic drugs mostly are coming from from Asian countries, but also being transshipped through the United States and some South American countries, uh, Mexico being one of them. You say some Asian countries. We know in the United States there's been a lot of attention on China. Are you talking about China specifically, or it's broader than that? It, it is broader. And again, these organized crime groups will ensure that you know, they can get their, their chemical precursors into Canada. They'll use any country where they can source those, those chemicals. China is one country, obviously, that we are making inroads and in, in collaborating with law enforcement in this country to try and establish collaborative efforts to stem the flow of chemical precursors. Uh, but we will work with any and every country where precursors are coming from. Can you explain a bit more about what that work with China looks like? So as you know, the, the political situation between the two countries right now is, is somewhat um, strained, I think we can say. Uh, it's complicated. We do have RCMP liaison officers working in China. You know, the RCMP, I can say, in, in a law enforcement context, does engage with law enforcement in China. We had successes a few years back on regulating and legislating certain precursors in China, which which had a significant positive impact on the drug situation. We are recently engaging not only police to police, but also through other federal departments with China to see should there be an interest in, in bilateral work against precursors. I can't say today uh, whether or not that's going to be successful. But that is one of our initiatives that we're trying to put forward is having bilateral 
work with China on precursors. And how are they actually getting across the border? One of the challenges is that a lot of these precursors um, are not illegal. They are used by chemical companies. So, you know, we, we do have chemical precursor programs here at the RCMP. We also operate with other law enforcement, both internationally and domestically, that have chemical precursor diversion programs, uh, not only to educate the private sector about what chemicals we're concerned about, whether they're regulated or not, but also to ensure that they report suspicious occurrences of chemicals uh, moving in and out of Canada that will be used to produce these synthetic drugs. Okay, let's dig into that question of exporting, which I'm sure, as I say, is going to come as a shock to a lot of people. Tell me, I mean, how big is the export market of of fentanyl and other drugs in Canada? It is significant. And um, I don't have figures in front of me, but there are countries around the world where synthetic drug prices are much higher than they are in Canada. And again, going back to these organized crime groups uh, that are all about profits, They are willing to export these products, take the risk to export to different countries rather than sell them in Canada to increase their profit margin. Where are they selling the drugs? We've had um, instances where these types of drugs are being shipped to countries such as Australia, uh, New Zealand. Again, fortunately, we collaborate with these countries uh, within our Five Eyes law enforcement group. Uh, So we have significant successes in disrupting these organized crime groups that are shipping these um, synthetic drugs to other countries. But that is what we're seeing right now in in law enforcement. I mean, you're talking about these chemicals coming in from uh, many places through all sorts of means. You're talking about these drugs being made in Canada and exported to the other side of the globe. I mean, how good a handle would you say we have on the toxic drug crisis? Because it's, it's quite a grim picture you're painting. It is. I mean, I can say that uh, within the RCMP and and specifically the federal policing program, this is one of our priorities. And we have, you know, significant resources. We have the expertise, but mostly we have the collaboration. So within Canada, we participate in a platform called uh, CIROC, which is the Canadian Integrated Response to Organized Crime, uh, with several federal provincial and municipal partners to address the production, the importation, the exportation of synthetic drugs and illicit drugs. And we're very successful internationally. As mentioned, we participate within the Five Eyes Law Enforcement Group. We have significant binational efforts with the United States uh, to counter the groups and the means in which these drugs are moving around our countries. I I do want to pick up on something you said there. You said we're very successful. I am not in any way trying to undermine the work of the people you work with, but given the picture in Canada right now, thousands of people dying every year, can we really say that the effort is very successful? What I would say is that the opioid crisis is more than a law enforcement issue. When I say we're successful... I'm commenting specifically on how we are impacting the supply chain of the illicit drugs. I think you are correct that the opioid crisis is a crisis because we are struggling. And when we say, when I say we, I, I'm not specifically referring to law enforcement. I'm referring to the whole of government approach and the truly the whole of society approach. I think we have to turn our minds to the demand and what we can do to ensure that individuals 
are not seeking out these substances. They appreciate and understand how dangerous and I, I would say how deadly they are. In closing, I want to focus on your goal. Fundamentally, what do you need to truly crack down on these gangs? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, I, I will say that what we're doing currently is is really the best strategy. International and domestic law enforcement collaboration, information and intelligence sharing is something we work on on a daily basis to ensure that we can stay ahead from the organized crime groups producing, importing and exporting these toxic illicit drugs into Canada and into our communities. We also are working with our other partners to impact the demand as much as we can. I think if we can parallel our efforts and ensure we reduce the supply while also reducing the demand, I think we will finally see uh, this crisis uh, start going in the right direction. And hopefully, while I'm still working, we can uh, put it behind us. Chief Superintendent, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Mathieu Bertrand is the RCMP's Chief Superintendent of Serious and Organized Crime and Border Integrity. Next week, we'll take an even closer look at what unfolds at the border. We're going behind the scenes with Canada Border Service's sniffer dogs. You'll hear that next Saturday here on The House. This weekend in Halifax, there's a gathering of some of the world's top defense and security minds. It's the annual Halifax Security Forum, a chance to reflect on the crises shaping the planet. And that's what we're going to do on the show today, too, with interviews about the personal and the political. We're going to start with someone for whom geopolitics is deeply personal. Evgenia Karamurza has lived through her husband being poisoned twice. And now, Vladimir Karamurza is in a Russian prison colony. Evgenia last saw him in April of 2022. He received one of the harshest sentences Russian authorities have handed down in some time. 25 years for treason after speaking out about the invasion of Ukraine. Evgenia Karamurza works as the advocacy director for the Washington-based Free Russia Foundation. Welcome to the House. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. To start with, how is your husband doing? Vladimir today is uh, being kept in a punishment cell of the maximum security prison colony in Siberia, about um, 2,000 miles away from Moscow. And uh, he's in a cell that uh, measures uh, 10 feet by 9 feet with a bed that is affixed to the wall from morning till night. He only has one backless stool as, as the only piece of furniture in this cell. Of course, he's in complete isolation. He does not have any um, phone calls. Uh, he's not allowed any phone calls, uh, any visits. He still is allowed to see his uh, lawyer about once or once a week or once a fortnight. But other than that, he doesn't see anyone. Uh, he keeps his spirits up because this is Vladimir. Um, he's a fighter, a true warrior, and I'm very blessed to have such a partner in my life. But I am, of course, very worried about his health. But this is not my only worry because uh, he is being held today by the same people, literally, who tried to kill him twice in the past. And while all of this 
is happening, he is writing opinion pieces for the Washington Post, speaking out against Putin, signing them from prison colony number six. Is he putting himself at even greater danger by continuing to criticize Putin while he's detained? I think that Vladimir's life has been in a grave danger from the current Russian authorities, from the Putin regime for many years now. But uh, Vladimir always says in such circumstances that it is his country and he's a Russian patriot and he's going to fight for the future for that country, a decent future where Russia would be a country based on the rule of law and respect for human rights and where Russia would not represent a threat to anyone around itself and including itself. So I understand that all those risks that Vladimir has been running for years have never deterred him from continuing his work before. And I understand that it's not going to happen today when he's uh, being held in a Russian prison. What is the path that you see to a moment where where Russia is free, where it is not led by Putin? Well, it's uh, definitely not going to happen tomorrow. And uh, even when the regime collapses, it does not mean that Russia will become a democracy right away. It's going to be a very long and very difficult work to get Russia to a place where it can be accepted back into the uh, circle of civilized countries of the world. But it is not it does not mean that it's not impossible. And tens of thousands of Russian citizens have voiced their opposition to the war and their opposition to the regime. Tens of thousands of Russians uh, are now running very similar risks uh, to ones faced by my husband. And uh, the number of political prisoners in Russia is growing by the day. And even according to very, very conservative estimates by Memorial, Russia's most respected human rights organization, uh, the number of political prisoners today in Russia is way over 600 people, which means that an alternative to the regime of Vladimir Putin exists. It is these people who represent an alternative, and this is why their voices are being suppressed with such harshness. This is why they're getting these impossible prison sentences. This is why punitive psychiatry made its way back into our country. This is why torture in places of detention in Russia does not even surprise anyone anymore. If there were no protest in the country, if there were no opposition in the country, then the regime would not be using all these uh, absolutely atrocious methods of repression against people. So it is absolutely crucial that this alternative somehow survives. This is why solidarity with that part of Russian civil society that understands what is happening and is trying to fight it is very important today because it, it truly is in the interest of the entire world that Russia becomes a democracy. And it is these people who will be able to make it happen. Given that opposition that you talk about to Russia's war in Ukraine, do you think that the war further entrenches Putin or that it is jeopardizing his rule? I am absolutely certain that uh, Vladimir Putin has made a huge a mistake, even, I mean, for such a monster as he is. And um, uh, of course, any war is not a mistake, it's a tragedy. But what I'm talking about here, I'm talking in Vladimir Putin's view of the situation. 
he has miscalculated many things. He has underestimated the resilience and the strength of the Ukrainian nation. He has underestimated the response of the civilized world to such an act of aggression against a peaceful nation. He has underestimated the uh, moral strength of many, many Russians who continue standing up to what is happening to him and his regime despite all the risks. And I believe that all of this combined continues weakening the regime. And if that support of the civilized world to Ukraine continues as it should, so that not the situation just can be maintained like the status quo, but Ukraine should receive all the support to win the war, to make sure that the Russian army leaves its territory, uh, including the illegally occupied zones, of course. And if Russian civil society continues receiving the support of the civilized world and its solidarity, then I believe that the regime will continue weakening and will see those cracks. And when people feel like they can finally do something, that they can, there is an opportunity to act, we will see millions of people in the streets of Russian cities. I want to end by talking about your family. You and I first spoke early on in your husband's detention. I had the opportunity to interview you, and you talked about the, the difficult conversations, the choice that he made to go back to Russia, knowing what could happen. You have three children at home in the United States with you right now. What are the conversations like at home? Well, they, um, our kids are, of course, strong and resilient and very supportive of my campaigning and truly proud of their father. They also want to take part in this, in this fight in their own way. And I appreciate that deeply, but they're also kids. They're also kids who are now living through hell yet again. They already saw their father in a coma and then relearning how to walk twice in two years. And now they see their father sentenced to 25 years of uh, strict regime in Russia by, by those people who, have, who tried to kill him twice in the past. So, of course, they're absolutely terrified for their father and they're terrified for our family. And, well, conversations, some of them are truly difficult. I understand what they're going through. And, of course, it doesn't make it easier for me knowing that I am very often not there when they need me the most because I have to be on the road. I have to travel all the time. I have to talk to opinion makers everywhere. I have to, I have to do my work as advocacy director of the Free Russia Foundation, advocating for Russian civil society, advocating for political prisoners in Russia, for other people who, like our kid's father, are behind bars today for standing up to Putin and for voicing there um, for condemning the war, the aggressive war against Ukraine. And I truly appreciate it that my kids seem to understand it. And every time I have to leave yet again and I tell them, sorry, they say, no, mom, it's okay, we understand. We, we know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just go and get daddy back. So I continue. Evgenia Karamurza. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Catherine. Evgenia Karamurza of the Free Russia Foundation. More to come on the House podcast. 
Stay with us. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to the show that helps you understand the political decisions that affect your life. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. You can find news and interviews on our website, cbc.ca slash the house. There are many international conflicts that deserve our attention. Our next guest is going to give us her perspective on why we are seeing so much trouble in the world right now and how to have conversations about solutions. It's something she has made her life's work. Comfort Arrow is the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group, an independent organization dedicated to analyzing, preventing, and resolving conflict. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with a a big question. How would you describe the state of the world right now? It's going in the dangerous direction. Um, I see two things. I see a new generation of conflicts across the horizon, across the, the, the globe. Um, I think Gaza being right at the top of that, um, Ethiopia and Sudan added to that. And I think underpinning all of this, and partly why we see um, a new generation of conflicts, is because we also um, have a crisis in peacemaking, on where diplomacy itself is struggling to find a pathway towards peace, um, towards a pathway towards um, deal-making, and where there's um, the battlefield dynamics far overweigh any appetite by any of the conflict actors to go to the conflict um, table. So it's a, it's a pretty bleak picture with um, grave um, consequences for civilians. And I think a hallmark um, of today's um, crisis, more than we've seen since the end of the Second War, bar the genocide in Rwanda of 1994, um, it's just a large-scale civilian toll. And again, I think um, Gaza, particularly with the number of children that have been killed in the last four to six weeks, is a perfect example of this very bleak um, picture that, I, that I'm describing. I'd like to zero in on the Israel-Hamas conflict Your group has been calling for a ceasefire, and you've actually outlined a path about how that might come about. What is it that you envision? I mean, look, I think at one end, there is a recognition for the right for Israel to defend its territorial integrity. I think there's a a strong case to be made that, you know, the, the surprising and very blatant attack by Hamas naturally would result in Israel wanting to defend its state. Yet at the same time, I don't think um, one can ignore the suffering and the huge um, humanitarian toll and the catastrophe that's facing the people of Gaza as well. Now, the two objectives that Israel is is pursuing, one is to destroy um, Hamas, Serious question marks as to whether you can militarily destroy something that is not just a military entity, but is a very, that has a very strong ideological bent to it. And that the other objective also is to restore um, Israel's sense of security. Now, if you can't guarantee those two things, you can also understand why Israel is pursuing its position. But I think there are real question marks 
as to whether these two objectives themselves um, can hold. And you have to find a way in which to address the harder issue about the rights of Palestinians, the rights of a people that have faced occupation for 56 years and also the state of siege in which the people of Gaza find. And, and I'm not justifying the attacks by, by Hamas. They're pretty horrendous. I think we all agree um, with that. But you know, bombing your way through the process, thinking that you, dis- that you can destroy Hamas without dealing with the undercurrents, without dealing with the fundamentals that led to this crisis is also part of the jigsaw. And if we can't begin to answer that and begin to think about a political horizon to accompany um, Israel, then I think it, we're, we're in a very dangerous moment, a, a moment also that is likely to draw in the region but also a moment where we're likely to see more and more um, violence um, against Palestinians, even in the West Bank, where we've seen increasing um, settler violence. So it's, it's very clear that a military solution is not, is not sustainable and is not enough to address the, the crisis we're seeing today. You, you say a military solution is, in your view, not sustainable, and yet you raise many questions about the difficulty of a path forward to ceasefire. I mean, how, how is it possible when we look at the seemingly intractable nature of what we see before us to, to get to the, the goals that you're, you're laying out? Yeah, I mean, I say a, a military option is, is not impossible. Of course, you know... The, Israel will look at sort of different scenarios and see that it may be able to destroy um, Hamas um, militarily. Again, I say it's unpredictable. But the the key then is that what happens the day after. Israel has made it very clear that it has no interest in reoccupying Gaza, although Netanyahu has said that they will remain um, in, in Gaza indefinitely. But it still comes back to the the fundamentals. What is the political vision that you're outlining here um, for Gaza? What does it look like in terms of how you restore um, governance into Gaza? What is your own definition of security um, in the country or in the region if you're not going to deal with those basic facts that have always been at the heart of the Israel-Palestine question, which is the rights of of Palestinians? So it's got to be a process that both recognizes um, Israel's sense of deterrence and security and restoring that, but in parallel dealing with this question about Palestinians' rights um, as a people and as a nation. I think the third strand of that is the regional security as well. Right now, as I speak to you, um, there's no appetite, there's no willingness. We've seen no indication that Iran um, or even Lebanon or any of the countries are are fighting here or or suing for a a wider um, escalation. And so maybe part of the solution um, is that you craft a political process that ties in the region um, and uses the region as part of the guarantor for Israel's security, although I think it's not lost on any of us that Israel is not about to outsource its security um, to the region. But again, it's, it's also very clear that you cannot get out of this crisis by just focusing purely um, on a military solution. I'd like to ask you briefly, our next guest is going to talk about the tension between China and Taiwan. As so much of the global focus is on the Middle East, what do we need to keep in mind about what is happening there? Well, I think, number one, um, it's welcome 
that both Presidents Xi Jinping and President Biden did, did meet on the sideline of the APEC um, summit in, in San Francisco. This is a year since Bali. Um, one of the key things that we'd been pushing for was to see the resumptions of high-level military dialogue so that you can avoid any miscalculation, especially around Taiwan and South and South China Sea. You know, the, the risk or the potential for a kind of miscalculation is real. One shouldn't underestimate it. And we're talking in the in the context where tensions between the two um, countries plus Taiwan was increasing, especially on the eve of Taiwan's own um, elections in January. So it's a very important um, first step that both leaders were able to meet and sort of lay out quite clearly um, their positions. Um, Biden was very clear that this was a relationship that was bound up in competition, and I think Xi Jinping came with a slightly different posture to say that was, there was room to both compete but still work in a very turbulent ar- arena as well. In the few moments we have left, you talked at the beginning about how the situation can seem bleak right now. What would you say to someone who is listening who might feel that there are also an incredible number of issues demanding attention at at home, things like the affordability crisis that can make it hard to grapple with everything else that demands our attention around the world? I mean, what is also, I think, just very clear is that the lines between domestic politics and foreign politics are increasingly blurred. I think the lesson that we learned from the COVID-19, from climate change, and just for the economic shocks um, that we've seen from all these crises, is that they're no longer um, crises that are far away from our shores. These are not um, incidents that are in some far distant flung off countries. Um, These are crises that know no boundaries, know no borders, they're they're existential, and they require cooperation. And that cooperation starts at the domestic level. So I think that's one of the big lessons. And my message um, would be that you cannot, your response cannot be pull up your walls because they will all come home to affect you in one way or another. And that's the lesson that we've learned from the last, from the last two or three years. And another good lesson, I think the two big crises that we're dealing with today, Ukraine on one hand and um, Israel, Gaza on another hand, it's very clear that these things are not isolated to their borders, but they also have um, regional ramifications that have global fallout, the economic shocks, the energy prices, and now we're seeing it in the same way in which the domestic politics um, is also sort of directing the way in which politicians are responding to the crisis, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Israel, Ga- um, Gaza. So we can't turn a blind eye to these these issues. They they have reverberations back at home. Really appreciate your reflections today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Comfort Arrow is the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. As you just heard, Taiwan's fate is an important international flashpoint. Beijing insists it's part of China. Taiwan, which has its own democratic government, rejects that. The United States has made it clear that China shouldn't take any further steps to lay claim to Taiwan. It was one of the sore points between Biden and Xi this week. But for the people who live on the island, the fear is that they will become the next Ukraine. Among them... Vincent Chow. He's a spokesperson and director of international affairs for the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan, the island's governing party. Welcome to the House. Hello, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. When you say Taiwan could become the next Ukraine, what is the scenario that you fear? 
I think the ideal scenario is that Taiwan will not be the next Ukraine, but Taiwan definitely has the potential to be because we see China following in a similar authoritarian expansionist pattern as Russia. And that includes not only the Taiwan Strait, the East China Sea, but also the South China Sea as well. So right now, our job is to ensure that this scenario never plays out. And we have to be very clear about the steps we need to take, which includes enhancing our self-defense capabilities and strengthening relationships with democracies all over the world. You talk about enhancing your self-defense capabilities. From what I've read, Russia's war on Ukraine was was something of a a moment of um, reckoning or awakening. And there has been significant efforts to better arm Taiwan. Tell me a bit about what is happening. So this has been an ongoing process since 2016. When President Tsai Ing-wen was elected as Taiwan's first female president in 2016, she put together a very strong defense reform package. So we've seen, for example, defense betting as a share of GDP go up from 1.78% to 2.5% most recently. We've increased conscription from four months back to 12 months. We've engaged in uh, reforms, not only of our reserve system, but also within our training regimen. And we've brought in new capabilities, which have been very important. I mean, Taiwan is a small country compared to China. We have 23 million people. They have 1.3 billion people. We're not going to be able to match them tank for tank, fighter jet for fighter jet. So we have to be smart and nimble about where we put those capabilities. And so there has been a focus over the past seven years on asymmetric capabilities, on capabilities that are able to utilize Taiwan's geographical advantages. Quickly, just to be clear, though, you're not where you'd like to be. This is very much still an ongoing effort. Well, you're absolutely right. This is an ongoing effort. And so from our political party, um, the current vice president is running for president. He's pledged to continue these defense reforms, whether we're talking about defense spending, whether we're talking about uh, conscription reserve reform or bringing in new capabilities, all of this will hopefully be continued for years to come. Now, against that backdrop, we had this meeting this week between U.S. President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. Certainly, the tensions over Taiwan came up. Do you feel that that meeting was ultimately good news or bad news for Taiwan? I think it's ultimately good news, to be honest. And I mean, I think Joe Biden, uh, President Biden and whole U.S. administration have been very clear. I mean, um, things aren't changing. This great power competition isn't changing between the United States and China, but it's important to put guardrails. It's important to have channels of communication so you avoid accidents and misunderstandings and misinterpretations. And I think that was precisely what the APEC summit was all about. So in that respect, I think it was not only good news for Taiwan, but the whole region as a whole. And yet China did also ask the United States to stop selling arms to Taiwan. Do you think that there's any risk that that will happen? I mean, they've made that consistent request since 1979 when the Taiwan Relations Act was passed. And I mean, the U.S. support for Taiwan's self-defense capabilities is enshrined in U.S. law. It's been there since 1979. Um, So I'm not fearful that this Chinese request will be granted. But I do realize that China has an interest and obviously um, showcasing that they have an ability to unify Taiwan peacefully if possible, but by force if necessary. So it's really up up to us uh, working with like-minded partners to prevent that scenario from ever being able uh, to take place. Okay. I do want to turn to, uh, as you were saying, international partners. I want to turn to Canada here. Um, 
In terms of Canada showing support to Taiwan, we know that when U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, it it ratcheted up tension. It it seemed to bother China. Do you want senior members of Justin Trudeau's government to visit? I think um, senior officials from any democracy in the world would be very much welcomed in Taiwan for the simple reason is this. International support is key, absolutely key, to maintaining peace and stability over the Taiwan's trade. I mean, like you said previously, there are two things that are um, essential for peace and stability. First one is a robust defense, ensuring that China never um, feels one day that they have a capacity to invade Taiwan. And second, ensuring that there's robust international support for peace and stability here. So in that respect, I do think it's not only helpful, but necessary in many cases for international leaders to visit Taiwan. Now, I also want to say Nancy Pelosi's visit really showcased that China has changed, not Taiwan, not the United States. I mean, a former U.S. House Speaker, Newt Gingrich, had come to Taiwan in the 1990s. Um, The Chinese did not engage in economic sanctions, military actions. Um, What changed? I mean, this was the exact same decision that was made 20 years ago, but Obviously, China has changed, and China has shown that it is now more aggressive. It is now more um, uh, engaged on issues of military adventurism, and so we have to be mindful of that. Vincent Chow, I really appreciate this conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Vincent Chow is the Director of International Affairs for the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan. That's what it sounded like when Justin Trudeau was effectively run out of a restaurant in Vancouver on Wednesday by protesters who want a ceasefire in the Middle East. In fact, the Prime Minister did have some new, stronger words for Israel this week. The price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. Those were comments that many staunch supporters of Israel did not appreciate. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was not happy. He tweeted a rebuke at Trudeau that defended Israel's actions. So why did the government change its message on the war in the Middle East this week? And is its position satisfying anyone? Here to talk about that, Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief. He now writes for The Economist. And Laura Osmond is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Thank you both for joining me. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Laura, I'm going to start with you. How has the government's message changed since October 7th? I think for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in particular, the first time we heard from him since the Hamas attack on October 7th was at a vigil in a Jewish community center in Ottawa. It was a packed house full of really emotional, sort of traumatized people. And his language was very strong, bold, and direct. He spoke about how Canada unwaveringly and absolutely stands with Israel and its right to defend itself under international law, that Hamas is a terrorist organization. And he really described the violence that unfolded in that attack in, I wouldn't say graphic detail, but very explicit detail. It was very impassioned, very um, empathetic, and absolutely appropriate for the audience that he had at that time. 
the comments that he made on November 14th that we just heard there were the first time that we've heard him speak like that since. And it was directed at Israel in a very different way, speaking about the suffering of Gazans, people in Gaza, the deaths of women and children. Um, And again, he spoke about it in very explicit terms. It wasn't a direct jump from one to the other. It took a long time. And his stance sort of softened over a period where he began to talk about, for example, the suffering of civilians. It references to international law that we saw sort of creep into his uh, comments over the past few weeks. Absolutely. And then we heard him talk about humanitarian pauses. Mm. And so suddenly Canada's um, unwavering stance beside Israel began to soften somewhat. Still, those November 14th comments were a big jump in the rhetoric, certainly, from what he'd been saying in the days and weeks before. So, Rob, the question then becomes, why? Why do you think we saw this change? That's, that's an excellent question. And we should tell listeners uh, that this was not in response to a question. This was quite deliberate. This was planned. Every, every syllable was measured. Every syllable was emphasized. He'd spoken a little bit about Hamas and how they need to release hostages beforehand. But there was a difference in tone. I'm struck as an old scribbler in the difference between listening, the sound of this, and how it might appear on the printed page. His jaw was set. There there was uh, emphasis on every single syllable. So when you think he planned this, why did he plan this? What was the objective? Uh, We don't have very much influence in what's happening in Israel right now or happening anywhere in the Middle East. So his objective, if one uses deductive reasoning, had to be domestic politics. Mm. He is under a great deal of pressure. Let's not forget that just a month or so ago, uh, 23 of his own MPs signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. He has taken a different stand than a lot of his fellow progressive leaders have in that he does seem to be trying to take a middle position between a ceasefire, for instance, and supporting Israel. Uh, And that's not winning him very many friends on either side of the divide. A couple of hundred people tried to prevent him from getting out of that restaurant in Vancouver the other night, and the police had to be called in. And it's not winning him any friends in Israel. But there is clearly a great deal of domestic pressure. Uh, Canadians are split according to, to polls, and so is his caucus. I think that's what he's responding to. Yeah, and I, I do think, I mean, it's clear uh, for anyone, as we all do, who talks to MPs up on the Hill, that there is tension within that caucus. And so, Laura, can you dig down a little bit more into the extent to which Trudeau's new comments have have had an effect, whether they've worked? I think it depends very much on what his motive was. I mean, there are so many factors that are weighing on the prime minister in his office right now. This is a conflict that is pulling on the Canadian fabric in a way that I certainly have never seen in terms of a a conflict that Canada has no involvement in. Um, We're seeing a massive rise in hate-motivated crimes, particularly against the Jewish community. We're seeing unprecedented levels of despair, frankly, from the Arab and Muslim community who feel that the lives of no one's looking out for the lives of Palestinians in this conflict. And so I think that for many, it was too little too late. Um, We heard, for example, the Prime Minister say, stop the violence now, but wouldn't say the word ceasefire, which Mm -hmm. is what many people have been calling for over the course of this last month and 10 days. And so feel that though he's being more explicit about his feelings for Palestinian civilians and calling for Israel to take maximum restraint, he's not calling for the bombing to stop, right? And so I think that um, to the extent that it's working, I mean, is it going to have an effect on our international diplomacy? 
probably not a positive one in terms of our relationship with the United States, in terms of our relationship with Israel? Is it winning fans in Canada? Certainly not to the extent that it absolves a lot of the anger that we're seeing across Canada. Rob, how should we think about how he has reacted to all of this in contrast to other world leaders? There, there are other red lines that uh, progressive leaders in particular that you might compare them to have, have drawn in the sand. Let's take Joe Biden, for instance. Uh, it would seem that there might not be a lot of difference between what Biden is saying and what Justin Trudeau is saying, but there is some significant difference. President Biden has said, in terms of what's going on at Al-Shifa, he doesn't want to see a firefight in the hallways of the hospital. But the other condition he lays down is he wants Hamas to stop being able to kill Israelis. We haven't heard that kind of red line from from Justin Trudeau. Uh, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, lost uh, over 50 of his MPs in a vote on a ceasefire. They voted in favour of a ceasefire. He, too, has essentially drawn a very, very clear line about no ceasefire. Uh, Justin Trudeau hasn't said the word ceasefire in a long, long time. But again, it seems that, that when you listen to that tone in his voice, that um, who, is, who is he holding accountable for what's happening, uh, for, the, for the death of civilians on both sides? There just seems to be more emphasis on his holding the Israelis accountable for for what's happening. And I think that's what prompted the blowback from Netanyahu and from Yair Lapid, the leader of the opposition in in Israel as well. Laura, quickly, I'd just like to wrap uh, by having you lay out for us how the leader of the official opposition is handling this, because Pierre Polyev does not seem to be seeking a middle ground here. No, and he's uh, he puts on a masterclass on staying on message. First of all, he'd rather not speak about this conflict at all. He's very focused on his message on the carbon tax, affordability, economics, and often pivots to those issues. When he's asked directly about the conflict and where he stands, his position today is the same position he had on October 9th. It's very much that Hamas is a terrorist organization, a death cult, as he says. Hamas is responsible for the atrocities happening in the Gaza Strip and that Canada stands with Israel's right to defend itself. He's been absolutely unwavering, which is where the contrast is between him and the prime minister right now. But he does have the very great advantage of not being in power. Okay, thank you both so much for your time today. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Catherine. Rob Russo and Laura Osman. That's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.